I'm getting dangerously close to having to wear reading glasses up here. Like real, real close. Like I, like I probably should go and grab some right now, but it's just pure ego that's keeping me from doing it at this point. Um, <laughs> I know. Just, just pray for healing. We'll see what happens in this place. You never know. Uh, glad you're here tonight. We're, tonight we're continuing in the Pentecost story. We were supposed to spend one week in it. Uh, we're on week three. Uh, there's just these kind of different topics and things that are touched on uh, that for me uh, have just felt important to, to talk about or to at least study. And so um, we're in week three. As you remember, uh, the first week we talked about um, kind of the amazing scene that happened with the group of followers who were gathered uh, in a house um, minding their own business, having a perfectly nice little religious service for Pentecost when uh, the tongues of fire come, when a wind, uh, violent wind shows up, when they begin uh, to speak in languages they don't know and they're kind of literally blown out of the house uh, out into the community uh, to talk about the wonders of God. And we talked about that idea of um, this new thing that was happening uh, the spirit that is uh, kind of infecting this new group of people uh, is pointing them outward always, right? Uh, out into this world. We're not insulated. We're not, we're not here for us. We're not here for what's happening inside the walls, but we're kind of put outwards into the world. And then last week we began to talk about Peter's sermon. And uh, when he comes out and the Peter, uh, the denier of all people, uh, is now uh, boldly kind of preaching and quoting the Old Testament and we talked about that, uh, that initial idea that we see in the Old Testament quotation that talks about God's Spirit being poured out into all flesh and how that's difficult for us to wrestle with that idea of, of everyone, the people that we dislike the most or we feel like are the most disqualified um, are also uh, chosen by God, are also a part of this plan. And so we talked about that. We started kind of with this universal vision of who's invited last week. But this week I want to get a little more particular uh, I want to kind of narrow it down and think about who was there to start with and why it's important for that it started small uh, for something that was going to get so big. Uh, and we know what happens later on in the book of Acts. Uh, I'm going to read one more time uh, through uh, Peter's, um, Peter's sermon here. Uh, and you've already heard it a couple times, but I'm going to read it one more time. And I want to talk about um, why this happened uh, in the place it did with this small number of people, something that's so big starts so kind of particular. It says this, uh, we're in chapter 2 of Acts, uh, verses 14, and I'm going to read through uh, 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And again, there's a lot of argument among theologians about all these portents and stuff. If that's, if that's talking about what happened surrounding Jesus' uh, death, uh, and the things that happen around, or if this is some kind of future uh, looking ahead. Uh, people argue over that, don't know that it matters totally. But uh, verse 21, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So big, grand, universal, and then we get narrow. Fellow Israelites, 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, the man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, Quote, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Man, there's a lot of like theology and stuff in here. We could spend weeks in all of this. Uh, this, is, this is not a text you want to give uh, someone who really likes to nerd out on this stuff if you want to get out of here anytime quick. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So again, we have this uh, amazing scene. We have Peter who gives a sermon. He starts off uh, universal, talking about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, and men and women, and old and young, and slave and free, and all these, all these things, right? How this is including everybody. And then he gets into this talk and talks specifically to the Israelites, to the Jews who were in front of him, and what this means for them. And then he pleads with them to repent. And again, if you keep reading in the book of Acts, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you will, you will see that there's always this expanding outwards. It's like the creation, uh, it's like what they say the universe is still doing. It keeps expanding outwards, right? But for now, in this particular situation, as broad as it will get, this is an explicitly Jewish phenomenon. This is happening to a small group of people. It is taking place with a very particular group of people. All of Jesus' Jesus, all of Jesus' disciples, all the followers at this point, everyone on this scene are all Jews. They're part of a relatively small tribe of people, globally speaking. This whole thing is particular before it is universal. Now we know what is coming. We know the Holy Spirit will not be contained, but it starts very small. It starts very particularly. It starts internally. It starts at home. It is for them before it moves out to the world at large. We have a story here where God's Spirit instigates 
an us-first event. And when you kind of think about it like that, it in some ways doesn't sound very Christian, right? Are, are, isn't, are we supposed to be going outwards? Isn't it supposed to be others first? Isn't that the, kind of the main teaching of Jesus in many ways, right? Because so many times Jesus specifically and in roundabout ways taught us to consider others' well-being before our own and how we give and how we serve and in the grasping of power. It's you first, right? You first is a very thoroughly Christian posture to have in the world. After all, the first shall be last, right? But here we see uh, something that I think is important. I think here we see that sometimes love and the Spirit of God dictates a me-first posture. After all, Christ did not get in the back of the line for the cross. He moved to the front willingly. And it isn't just that the first shall be last, but it's also that the last shall be first, Sometimes love says me first. Is there a burden to bear? Me first. Is there a confession to make? Me first. Sometimes love insists on being at the front of the line. And this is one of those lines because this entire scene is ultimately about repentance. That's what it's getting to. Repentance is a line that we should be at the front of. It's about us first. When it comes time to examine hearts, when it comes time to confess, when it comes time to check our own motives and change our own hearts, the follow of Christ, followers of Christ say, me first. And I want to focus on this particular idea tonight because it seems to me that we as people and as people of faith oftentimes find ourselves at the beginning and the end of the wrong lines. There are times to say, me first, but we miss it a lot. A lot of times we get in the front of the wrong lines, right? Uh, generosity, the money and the stuff that I've been given, me first. Let me get everything I want and then I'll think about what generosity might look like. Politics or laws to be passed, make sure it accomplishes what I want first and helps me out first, then we can think about everyone else, right? Uh, people's time and energy and, and resources. A lot of times we as churches say me first. You can worry about the rest of the world later on. Us first. We do this a lot. This isn't just a thing that happens in the world. It happens with us as people of faith. If you just listen, uh, especially right now, it feels like to how Christians argue for certain political and social causes, it starts a lot with me first. It starts a lot with things like, well, my rights are fill in the blank. As if Christian morality and ethics begins and ends with whatever I'm entitled to. Now, I'm very happy to live in a country with rights. We can do things like we're doing tonight. Obviously, I love that. But there's a lot more to consider in my decision-making as a Christian than what I'm allowed to do or what I should be allowed to do. My decision-making doesn't begin and end with what I can do or even deserve to be. It's not me first. There are times when love means seeing others benefit or the benefit for the culture at large even at our own expense, even at the expense of what is my right. Conversely, I think we also get at the end of the wrong lines. We consider others first when we shouldn't. I think, I think one of the most telling things is if you were to take a poll in this room and, I've, and all the polls I've read that happen just out there in the culture, and you ask everyone whether or not this country is headed in the right direction, you will almost get a unanimous answer of no 
no matter where people are on the political spectrum, which is a little odd that the most liberal person and the most conservative person and the most moderate person, none of us think the country's going the right direction, all for different reasons. I'm not sure what you do with that, but that's who we are, right? You'll almost certainly get a majority answer, no. Things are not going the right direction. But if you ask a follow-up question, if you ask a person who thinks the country is going in the wrong direction what they need to do and what they need to change about themselves in order to make things better and in order to get things back on track, you'll almost certainly get the sound of crickets. Because we almost all believe things aren't going well and we all know it's their fault. We know things aren't right, but none of us want to get in the front of the blame line or in the front of the change our lives line. Another way, a uh, spiritual way of saying this, you know, the, the, the theological term is none of us want to get in front of the repentance line. We don't want to say me first when it comes to repentance. Saying we're part of the problem is hard to do. Owning the fact that I need to change is not my first impulse. And it, it's, it's like every part of my life I find this to be true in. A lot of you in this room are my age uh, or maybe older. I think everyone I know that's probably over 30 or 35, if you ask them, on balance, is social media a net negative or positive for our world? I think everybody would say net negative, like personally, culturally, otherwise, right? People spend too much time on it. It distorts our worldviews. It tribalizes us and moves us to extremes. I don't know anyone my age, and for those of you who may be younger than me, I'm going to tell you something that will blow your mind. Uh, There was no internet when I was a kid. Uh, There was no cell phones when I was a kid. There was no Facebook when I was a kid. There's no YouTube or Wikipedia. Uh, There was libraries. I had to read books in order to answer questions. It was, you know, or I just didn't know is more what happened, Uh, or made up an answer. I lived in the world before all of that stuff. I'm, I'm, one of the, I'm going to be one of those uniquely positioned people that can tell you what the world looked like before that. And I don't know anyone my age that goes, oh, I wish I had Facebook when I was in high school. <laughs> I mean, is there anyone my age that just, man, if, we if I could have just really, if I could have really posted that really bad poetry about the girl who didn't like me online, it could be immortalized forever. Oh, if, if that haircut could just be on the internet for all of time, that would be great. Oh, oh, if the people that didn't invite me to stuff could have posted pictures of the things they went to without me and I could have seen them all the time, that would have been awesome. No, no, I, I, I was, I, I had a rough time. I was thoroughly depressed in high school. I had a rough time in high school. I can't imagine how much worse it would have been, honestly, with social media. I can't imagine how much worse it would have been. I know life is better without it. Ask me if I'm on social media or not. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Am I too much? Yes. Is it a net negative for my life? Almost certainly. I just don't want to be at the front of that line. I don't want to be in front of the line. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, the flip phone was great when I had it, but now that I know what you can have, I don't really want, and, I've, and I even looked, I even priced them out, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm going to go flip phone. This is what I'm going to do. And I started getting the shakes just thinking about it. I know, I know that it's bad for my kids. And I know my eight-year-old already wants it, 
Already wants the phone, already wants the social media, already wants it. And we're trying to find other parents, because I'm not man enough to do it myself, to say, flip phones at 16. Who's with me, right? Amen. Okay. And we may build a whole separate little cult out of this group on that, on that basis. Like, because I, I know, I know it. I just don't want to be in the front of the line of changing my life, right? So it, it finds its way into, into a whole lot of things. There's a lot of things I don't want to say me first to that I should say me first to. We often make the wrong choice of which line to get in the front of, which line to get in the back of. But not always. It doesn't always happen that way. In fact, I am, I am happy to say I was thoroughly surprised and impressed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we, we talked in the last couple of weeks about uh, the largest denomination uh, in our country, which is a Southern Baptist uh, denomination, had uh, an external um, audit done, audit's not the right word, like uh, investigation done. And it turned out that there was years and years of cover-up of abuse that happened in churches and like not telling churches that there was abusers that were coming to their church, all kinds of terrible stuff. And the leaders of that denomination, those who had power, had chosen their own institution and their own protection over protecting people who were abused. And it, it was awful. It, the report was so much worse than most people thought it was going to be. And what, what happened immediately was that there was a group within that as soon as that came out, began to insulate and defend the indefensible and try to blame shift anyone they could. They wouldn't even consider the idea of repentance, right? And they were getting loud and they were starting to make noise and there's a big vote coming up in the convention about who was going to be the next president and presidents were kind of on opposite sides of this issue. So that vote was going to say a lot about whether or not there was going to be a posture of repentance for what had happened or whether or not it, it, there would not be, right? In fact, uh, when the non-religious uh, group who had done this investigation, this is what they do professionally, they're not a religious organization, they, they had access to all the emails and everything and they uncovered all this, that group, not a religious group, had posted something for Pride Month on like Instagram or something like that. Again, they're not a religious group, they have no particular denomination they're affiliated with or anything. Part of that group sees the line and said, see, these people don't share our values. See, they can't be trusted to talk about this stuff. Just forget all that abuse stuff, right? And that was, ha that was happening going into this last convention when people were going to vote. There was politicking. People were trying to, you know, get people to vote different ways, all these kind of things. But there's also a group of uh, people who voted, and it turns out, thankfully, the majority who said, no, 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 we're not going to get at the back of the repentance line, Right? I was grateful to see that a majority of those voting in the denomination did not do that. It seems, I hope this is the way it plays out, that the posture after this report was instead me first in repentance, right? A lot needs to be done still. It's not my denomination. I don't get to say whether they're doing good, bad, or otherwise. But I was very impressed and happy to see the vote went the way it did. That's the line you should be in the front of. Right? And Ultimately, the entire Pentecost scene is moving this particular group of people, this small group of folks, globally speaking, towards repentance. It is the whole point, right? In verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, what do we do? What, what is all this for? What does all this mean? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, right? Repentance is turning from one thing to another. It's an intentional reorientation. 
And despite what a lot of us grew up with in church, it is not an inherently bad thing, uh, and it is not something to be avoided. And I know it was screamed at some of you instead of talked about, and that uh, you know makes it kind of touchy whenever the word comes up. Repentance is good news. Despite the baggage it often holds, uh, and it's not about self-hatred, it's not about self-condemnation and how worthless you are, it is a prerequisite to the faith that leaves us open to change, right? Repentance is an inherently humble posture as much as it is a single act. It holds open the potential that I might be wrong, that I don't know everything, that I am probably at least partly to blame for things, that I'm not the pure hero of this narrative. I'm not exempt from blame, and I'm not exempt from the need to change. If we are people of repentance, we are always changing. It's the antidote to our magical human ability to twist the whole world into whatever shape we need to keep us the hero of the story. And there are times when we watch people do this, and I almost envy people who are really adept at doing this because I think, man, what a nice world that must be to live in to always be the hero. They're probably having fun. But I don't think that's true, actually. I think it's actually a very heavy burden to bear. And I was reminded as I was preparing this talk of what is honestly probably the, one of the most important conversations I ever had as a young leader in a church setting. I was asked to help lead a youth group when I was 19, my freshman year in college. Uh, wholly unqualified, but I wasn't really in charge. So it was okay. The youth minister I worked with was a good friend, and it was becoming kind of a, a, a big mentor of mine. I was really looking to him to how to be you know, the kind of man I'm supposed to be in this world. And I had done something, I don't know what it was, it was minor, uh, I mean, I think, I don't think it was a big deal, but I had done something, maybe the way, I, not the way I was supposed to, or the way he had asked me to do it in, at the youth group the, the night before, and, uh, and he called me on it, and he said, hey, what about this, you weren't supposed to do that this way, or whatever, and I began to defend myself, um, which, which I, I'm pretty good at, I'm pretty good at justification, I'm pretty good at defending myself uh, if, if I need to, and so I began to defend myself ad nauseum, and that's, that was Typically, my strategy as a 19-year-old uh, back then is I just uh, kept talking and didn't leave room for anyone else to say anything until they shut up, and I won. Um, so I started doing that, and I, I just defended myself about whatever it was that he asked me to change and adjust to uh, or rethink. And after I talked and talked and talked and had sufficiently justified myself, I was very impressed myself. Um, he listened, and then he said something along, I don't know, this is probably not an exact quote, but this is the spirit of it. He essentially went, huh, well, I am sorry to imply that you may have ever done anything wrong. I know you've never done anything wrong, so we'll just move on and then headed off and kept working on whatever we were working on. And again, he was, he was a mentor. I really looked up uh, to this guy. And to be honest, when he said it, it hurt. It slapped when he said it. And as soon as I felt that hurt uh, in my own internal dialogue, I began to really kick in and I began to tear him apart and justify myself on what I'd done. Uh, in other words, I began to completely do exactly what he had just told me I was doing. And there's not many times in my life where I've had like a total aha moment, but that flipped a light switch on in my own head and heart. And I remember going home that night and, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it and I felt what I, you know, was conviction. Uh, I tried to avoid that, so I wasn't sure really what that felt like. And I began to realize, like, man, my own insecurities, which I ha had uh, a lot of at the time, uh, my own kind of uh, disregard for myself and, and my own kind of woundedness, kept that kind of protection up. And I, I felt like I always had to be right. I could never own the fact that I had done something wrong because it just 
It was too scary. Uh, and it changed the way I began to look at myself and think about those things. Uh, it hurt for a moment, uh, but it changed the way I looked uh, at ministry and myself. In my own head, previous to that, I was always the victim. Everything was everyone else's fault. Uh, and that's kind of the subconscious world I lived in. Uh, and as it turns out, and I found out uh, soon thereafter, as I began to try to do better at this, uh, at first just with him, because uh, he's the only one who knew my secret, uh, but eventually in my life in general, uh, it turns out that saying I'm sorry or I'll do better or my fault uh, was a very freeing thing. It was okay. The world didn't end. Uh, everyone didn't say I don't want to be your friend anymore and stop returning my calls. Um, it was fine. I messed up. Everyone messes up. There's grace. There's forgiveness. You get up. You try again. Somehow that had remained a mystery to me for the first 19 years of my life. Just own it, right? It's okay. No one thinks you're perfect. No one wants you to be perfect. In fact, we'd all feel a little better if we knew you weren't. There's grace. There's forgiveness. We're all right here with you. A posture of repentance is a good thing. It's a line that we should get to the front of. And yes, the Holy Spirit and the church is going to explode outwards. It's going to keep breaking boundaries. It's going to be universal in its scope. But repentance starts with us. We aren't me first in a lot of things, but we are me first in the repentance line. We should be known as the people who humbly accept our part in whatever is going wrong. We should be known as those who are willingly and humbly accepting the burden that we all should share. To be a people who are known for their contrite tone and penitent posture instead of being the folks who have all the right answers and that you can come to when you get as perfect as they are. We should be committed to humbly serving instead of being so confident in our own rightness and righteousness. Repentance starts with us. It might be an oversimplification, but you could argue that the whole of Christian living is about choosing the right lines to walk to the back and the front of. What should we do? Peter says, repent. And our response should be, me first. Because before we can go and follow Christ, being last in this hurting world, we must be first in this line. Let's pray.